My name is Matt Hergy. When Stephen Mandel moved into the Edmonton's mayor's office in 2004, he had quite a lot to say. The city wasn't living up to its potential, he said. The city needed to focus its energy on making housing more affordable. Neighborhoods needed to be rehabilitated. The city's downtown wasn't developing in a way that met the needs of all Edmontonians. And the LRT needed to be augmented. In the nine years since, Mayor Mandel has led the rallying cry, pushing Edmontonians towards becoming what he has dubbed a world-class city. But after three terms in office, and in the final days of his mayoral tenure, I asked Mandel if he had ever left something unsaid. <laughs> There's always words you wish you could express, but you can't because you'd be put in jail. So, you know, it's... It's the CJSR edition. It's the CJSR edition. This is the CJSR edition. Broadcasting from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. On 88.5 FM and CJSR.com. After 3,271 days as mayor of Edmonton, and with only 20 days left until he officially vacates the mayor's office, on this week's episode of the CJSR edition, Stephen Mandel speaks with me in a surprisingly frank interview about his successes and his failures as Edmonton's mayor. During his nearly nine years in office, Mandel ushered in public works projects like the expansion of the LRT, established the framework for building the love-it-or-hate-it downtown arena, and expediated the closure of the city centre airport. But what sort of imprint does he think he's left on the city? Well, you know, that'll be for other people to decide. You know, when I'm done and we've tried to give good government, we've tried to move the city forward, and people will evaluate that as people evaluate things. Then later in the show, what did the 15th century Ottoman Empire sound like? CJSR's Roshni Nair speaks with Nina Ergren, a presenter of the I Am a Bird from Heaven's Garden Music, Sound and Architecture in the Muslim World Conference that took place at the University of Alberta to find that answer. And finally, as Halloween approaches, we travel to the hallowed grounds of the Art Gallery of Alberta to shed light on a new spidery exhibit that has materialized there. All that and more on the CJSR edition. But first up, the extended interview with the soon-to-be-retired mayor of Edmonton, Stephen Mandel. This is the CJSR edition. Stay tuned. Stephen Mandel was born in Windsor, Ontario. He received an Associate of Arts degree from Lincoln College in Lincoln, Illinois, a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration from Miami University, and his Master's in Political Science from the University of Windsor. In 1972, 
Mandel moved to the City of Champions. But before pursuing a political career, he spent 30 years in the private sector as a business entrepreneur. Mandel's political career spans just 12 years, but it's been 12 years well spent. In 2001, Mandel was elected to Edmonton City Council, and just three years later, made a successful run for the mayor's office, unseating the one-term Bill Smith to become Edmonton's 34th mayor. Nine years and three terms later, Mandel announced his retirement on May 21st, 2013. Stephen Mandel, thank you very much for coming on the CJSR edition today. Uh, so, Mayor Mandel, you've been mayor of Edmonton going on nine years now, and your term spans a very transformative time in the city's history. And it's coming to a close in, in a very controlled way here uh, on your own terms, which is something that a politician, that many politicians don't really have the capability of doing, announcing their own retirement. Mayor Mendel, when you were first elected in 2004, did you ever think how it was ever going to end? No, um, I don't think anybody does. Uh, you hope that it ends positively, that they don't boot you out, and that um, you have a positive time. So, no, I really never thought. I always knew at some point in time I would, ma I would make a decision, I would quit, or the citizens make a decision that you're out. So I got lucky I made the decision first. Do you feel like you accomplished everything that you wanted to? You'll never do that. I don't think that um, we accomplished way, way more than I ever dreamt we would. But as we accomplished things and as I saw that with a good council and a good administration and a supportive public, you can do many things, there's always more things you'd like to do. And, um, and that's what I think drives people to stay too long. And they always, well, I'm the one that can do that. No one else can. Well, my belief is other people continue to do what I'm doing. The citizens want that or they'll just go some other direction. What happens when a mayor stays too long? They get defeated. Um, they lose public support. I, I just think it. Um, I think it's every politician, not just a mayor. Any politician stays too long in the leadership role. You end up um, creating more problems than you, you cure. So uh, that doesn't mean that um, people make their own decisions. What that timing is. I made my decision that after the third third term, I would uh, move on. But um, some would say after the fourth term. Some have stayed even longer than that. Okay. Not in Edmonton, mind you, but in other places. Was it, was it difficult on that day to announce your retirement? And what was going through your, what, what, what sort of feelings happened on that day? Well, I'm a, a very emotional person to begin with. And um, so um, it was a very emotional day because you, you begin to reflect back upon the friendships you've made, the people you've met, uh, the things you've accomplished, the the challenges that you have successfully met and other ones that you haven't, and uh, and realize that, that the decision you make that day is a decision you're going to have to rest with, and, and it will be the one you live with. And so it's difficult. And um, so when I made the decision, it was um, difficult, but, but it was something I knew I had to do. I, I'm a big believer that politicians um, often over, overstay their welcome, and... Um, and I'm not saying my welcome had worn out, but uh, in my mind, three terms was a substantial length of time. 
and um, the time was for me to move on. You know, I, I would hope that uh, the next uh, uh, leader of the city and uh, council will be, will move forward and, and continue to build a great city, but I won't be in control of that, and uh, and, and so I only wish them the best of luck. Well, that's what I mean. For, for all intents and purposes, you're a, you're a popular man in Edmonton, and you've done a lot of really positive things for the city. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you ever think that maybe you would stay around for another four years? No. No? No, it never, it, to be very frank with you, a few things. One, when they went to four-year terms, that was the absolute nail that said, for sure, I, I didn't want to do another four years. But even more than that, I think that when I started out, I'd felt I would run two terms, but circumstances dictated that I really believed that there was enough big issues out there that I needed to stay a third term. Um, and so I did. And, and going beyond that, I think, would have been a disservice to Edmontonians. Because you wouldn't, you know, there's tremendous passion to do that jo- this job. You have to get up every day of the week. It's seven days a week. It's not Monday to Friday. It's not 9 to 5. And it's uh, 12, 14 hours every day. And it's passionate hours. And, and I found that um, I was getting tired. So let's go back in time then uh, to the day that you assumed office mm-hmm. on October 26, 2004. Mm-hmm. What was that day like for you? Well, it's quite euphoric, I would guess. My mom was with me, uh, my wife, my, my children. Um, you know, it's one of those things that um, um, is a moment in time that's very special. The first of anything is, is, uh, is um, pretty spectacular. You know, when, when I won the election, that first election uh, for mayor was, was really something that you could never, I could never put down a paper explain. It was, it was a special feeling. And when I, and when I um, swore in in cooperation with my other council colleagues, well, most of them were friends, and knew we would be a team for the next three years. And what would happen would happen, and how we'd work together would, was still to be yet to be determined. But the challenges ahead were great, and the, the opportunities were endless. And uh, um, we just had to have a vision to move forward. So it was a very exciting moment. Maybe then a more appropriate question would be, what was the second day like for you? It's said in reality. Yeah. <laughs> that, you, that then all of a sudden now you better perform. You have to find ways to accomplish the things that you said you wanted to do during the, the campaign. And, uh, and, and, and it fully said in that as the mayor you have one vote and that you really need to get the other 12 people moving in some way in a similar direction forward. Otherwise, you're going to fail. And so we started out on day two to see how we could build this consensus, build this team. Um, and, you know, I think we did okay in, in the three terms. So over those three terms, over that, those nine years as mayor of, of the city of Edmonton, was it what you expected? It was way more than what I expected, to be honest with you. Way, way, way more. It, it, it really has been a spectacular nine years for myself. My wife has been equally spectacular. She's been volunteering in more committees and doing more than I ever dreamt I would do. But it has been a, a sensational nine years. Um, much has happened. Some things people have liked, some people things haven't liked, but uh, for the most part, I think we've tried as a, as, a, as, a, as a package of things, move the city forward a great deal. You speak very highly in, in a lot of interviews about your wife. How important has she been over the past oh nine God, years to you? I mean, yeah, it's hard to put in words the role that Lynn played. Um, she's still very active in a bundle of committees. Um, we're still going to her events more than my events. and, um, and But when she does things, she does them 
with a tremendous heart and commitment. She doesn't just say, I'm going to sit in this board as the honorary chair and do nothing. She's selling tickets. She's helping promote the event. She's uh, actively uh, involved in the, 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 the role that a, a chair would have as much as an honorary chair. Uh, Lynn is a, a very, very hardworking person and a wonderful, wonderful heart. Um, I love her dearly, and she really has been very special for the city um, because I think she's done so many really wonderful things. Will it be hard for her? I don't want to put words into her mouth, but will it be hard for her to not be uh, in that position anymore? According to her, no. <laughs> According to her, she says she's tired too. I mean, uh, she at one time sat on 18 different boards and committees, so um, which is way more than I ever did. So um, I think she's tired, and she'd like to she'd like to get a break. Mayor Mandel, what what do you imagine was the most unexpected thing that occurred to you over the past nine years? Um, wow, that's that's a great. I've never had that question asked. Many have asked, "What is the thing you best accomplished?" You know, what is the most? Uh, I I think that one of the most difficult things was to um, keep my temper sometimes. Um, I'm quick to temper, and sometimes I didn't. Um, and sometimes my mouth got me into trouble. Um, and some people are saying, yes, 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 right now. Um, but I think that's that's a, a more difficult than I thought, because you, when you're in front of the cameras or in front of the public, be very, very careful what you say. And you have um, no time to, to measure your words. You have to measure them in milliseconds. And so you have to... Um, be very cautious in what you say, and it, that's that was that was very unexpectedly um, a bigger issue than I thought. Because if you do say something, you can't you can't take it back. Now, you know, if you make a small bobo, uh, the media here in Edmonton are great, and they'll let you, you know, take something back. But if you continue to do it, you're in trouble. That was something that I, I didn't think would be uh, as as big a challenge because it really, as much as I thought, people heard counselors. They listen to what the mayor says. And um, so it, it is a different role you play in how you speak to the media and to the public. I think it's particularly probably the case for you, uh, an individual who very much wears his heart on his sleeve and is very vocal about what he believes in. Oh, yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I don't pull any punches. I don't try to color code it. And so in my case, that was a, even a bigger issue, that I didn't say some words that, I, that you're not supposed to say in public. And so, um, yeah, it, that was that was interesting. Were there words that you wish you had expressed? <laughs> There's always words you wish you could express, but you can't because you'd be put in jail. So you know, it's a, no. I mean, you 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 try to to express yourself as best you can, keeping your um, um, the, the temper around you in proper proper perspective. You know, sometimes I did get mad. Um, and I, because I felt they had to get mad. Um, so, I mean, you, you need to make sure that the, the response you give is, is representative of the circumstance you're in. Mayor Mandel, in 2005, uh, the census reported that Edmonton had a population of 712,000 people. Mm -hmm. And today that number is more to the tune of something like 820,000. Probably 850. 850. Uh, what challenges have you faced uh, and how in relation to that population growth and it and how is population growth dictated your priorities as as mayor 
That, that's um, a good question. F- first of all, as our city grows, it's, it's, a, it's a very diverse population. And I think since 2005, our population has um, become far more multicultural. That's presented some different issues. Uh, a new group of people coming to Edmonton heretofore hadn't been here. Uh, we had to try to um, supply services for them. A real influx of people from down east who were of African origin. So we set up the Africa Center, uh, and the African communities really responded wonderfully for that. Um, we've had a tremendous increase in, uh, in, in population of Central Asia. And so there's been a different need. Um, there's been a different support systems required. And so, um, you know, the city's had to um, look to diversify ourselves in, in, in meeting those demands. And, and that, as a result, has, has created a, a different um, Dynamic within our administration, and so we've we've spent much more time and effort on uh, community services, uh, trying to deliver programs that would meet those needs. Um, that's one. Two, housing product. Uh, we need to have a much better and more diverse housing product. Um, you know, we, you just can't build single-family homes. You have to have multifamily. You have to have different kinds of multifamily. Uh, affordable housing became a much bigger bigger issue. Um, Transit, because more people are taking transit. We spent billions of dollars on transit. Uh, so the, the, the change in population has put pressure on the growth. We need more police officers, more fire stations, more of everything. And so the cost of running the city has grown quite a bit because, you know, we've grown by about 20% in the last uh, eight, nine years. I'm curious uh, about the ethnic diversity that ha- has happened in our city, which is most likely a good thing for for a growing city, for a metropolitan city. But you talked about how it creates certain, not problems, but uh, circumstances that need to be resolved. Well, it's only positive. There are some challenges that are created because of a influx of a population, and that population does have some challenge. We have to learn to deal with those. Um, but the growth of our country and the growth of our population is going to come from new immigrants just because it's, we're just not producing enough children. So if you're going to grow as a city, you've got to grow either by taking people from Newfoundland, which we've taken most of them already, or from other parts of, of the world or other parts of Canada, the new immigrants of the country. So I think that um, it has presented some interesting issues, but, you know, it's made our city a stronger, more interesting, more interesting and dynamic place. I mean, to have people from all over the world... Um, Go to Heritage Days in, in uh, long weekend in August. I mean, it's remarkable to see the number of, of um, countries that are represented. And really, that, there's probably 15, 20, 25, or 30 that would like to be represented. Or there's a, a, a bringing together of two or three countries into a single booth because there's just not enough space. So the multicultural character of our city is, is really important. Interesting statistic. And not because of me. When I became mayor, we were the slowest-growing multicultural community in the country. And a couple years ago, we were the fastest. That's on a percentage basis. Obviously, Toronto grows at a much quicker base. But we are attracting people here. They're seeing this as a city of opportunity. They're seeing this as a city that they can build a future for their children. It's just wonderful. It seems to me like if, if we're on the topic of growth, it seems to me that growth has... As a city, we've been increasingly confronted with the pains of a big city. Like you were talking about infrastructure and uh, social services and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, but that's the way it is. I mean, you, you, you know, we, we have a limited tax base, which is really just um, residential tax base and, and user fee, which have a, a restriction placed on them by, by the Municipal Government Act. So we can only do so many things. But 
you know, for us to meet the, the needs of our citizens. Um, you know, a, as we've grown, we've had to invest a great deal of money in capital and uh, infrastructure. We've spent uh, $9 billion in the last um, seven or eight years uh, on infrastructure. I mean, if we, you know, they hadn't, we hadn't built a, a leg of the LRT since the late, early, late 70s. We built two and planned two more and hoping to place the financing for, for the third one. Um, you know, we built recreation centers, libraries. Um, we've, you know, spent $2 billion on roads, put a neighborhood improvement program in place. Um, you know, we built bridges and over, overpasses. You know, we spent a lot of money, and, you know, and people say, we spent a lot. Well, then tell me what you don't want us to spend. Which overpass that you use don't you want? Which recreation center don't you want that affects you? And which library don't you want? And which child do you want to be depriving of that library or that recreation center or that, or that field? Or what road don't you want us to fix? So, I mean, people say, watch what you've spent. And I say, yes, we have. We're very cautious, very cognizant. We're very responsible. But, you know, you cannot just say we're going to do for you and not for you. In 2004, you ran a mayoral campaign, uh, among other things, uh, founded on the idea that you were going to run the city like you would a business. Uh, is that possible to do in, in hindsight? No. <laughs> I think you can run a city as a business in, in, in parenthesis and try to be as efficient as possible and, and try not to waste money. But, uh, you know, we offer social services to people. We have recreation centers. Not everybody can afford. So a business would say, no, you can't pay, you can't come in, or we have to make a profit on it. Well, the city doesn't do that. Um, first of all, if you can't afford, we make arrangements. We have a program to get in that recreation center, or um, we have the rates in, in that recreation center quite reasonable because we don't try to recoup our capital cost. But at the same time, we should run that recreation center as efficiently as possible, not have a huge number of people we don't need, and make sure you know the lights are lights are on and off when they should be, and uh, and the water is used properly, and run it efficiently. But you know there are things within a government that are different than those of, of private enterprise. Uh, I would have liked to see us be take some of our private enterprises like our land development and make it more profit-driven and more profit-oriented and separate it from the city. Um, and I, I think that there's a few things like that um, I would like to have seen done more. We're trying to do that with our waste management. Um, we're setting up our, uh, our, our solution, R as in the letter solutions um, um, for uh, waste management. So we're trying, um, and we need to be more responsive to business. Business, in my mind, is vitally important to a city, every city. It really drives the economy, it drives employment, drives every bit of opportunity. So um, government is a user of dollars, and, um, and uh, private enterprise is a creator of dollars. You've championed the city of Edmonton as a sort of a world city, a city on the map, really. Uh, so what roadblocks does the city face in reaching that goal in the future? Oh, the only roadblock we face is the citizens themselves. I don't think there's a city in the world that can match up to this. And if you take a look at probably have one of the, both, one of the best post-secondary educational systems in the country. I'd make a comment on that, but I won't because I don't want to create a political part about the show. Um, two, we have the best public education, meaning public and separate school education for kids. We have a tremendous economy. We have, I think, one of the most environmentally sensitive cities in the country. We have a, a river valley and uh, that's spectacular. We have a quality of life that's second to none. Um, we have, without question, um, the best city that exists, I think, in North America, could be in the world. What holds us back is the citizens of Edmonton. Um, 
want to make sure that nobody knows about it. And they want to keep it quiet, want to keep the story uh, a little untold. And so, um, you know, uh, um, people say, it's good enough. We shouldn't do too much. And I think we need to do more and more to, to sell this city because it's a competitive world. And either you compete or you die. And for so many years, we decided not to compete, not that we died as much, but what happened is that the younger generation, your age, saw another place as more, more uh, op- opportunistic, and, and that really wasn't good. And so one of the major goals of, of this council, myself, is we need to build a city that the younger generation sees as an opportunity for them. They can have fun, they can enjoy their life, they can build a future, they can have a family. But it is about starting where they see Edmonton as a place of interest, it's a dynamic community, and it's a place they can begin to see where their future is. I find that really interesting, the idea that uh, we don't like to sell ourselves. and But that doesn't really quite square up with the idea that we're, we're a very ambitious city and we have all these campaigns like Make Something Edmonton that w- wants to improve the city and make it better. Yeah, but but that's was this is now, I was saying before, mm. um, like now we're a much more ambitious city. You know, today versus nine years ago, we're a city that really is on the move, a city that really is competitive, a city that uh, um, that is, is is to be reckoned with. That's really well known around the world for for a multitude of things, um, and make something. Edmonton is one aspect of of internally trying to get people to see how, if you so desire, you can make anything happen in this city. Whatever you so desire, you know, whether it's uh, building um, a big construction company or building a mom store or writing a book or joining the art gallery or joining the library board. There's no there's no barriers to people here. So what do you say to those citizens that are maybe ho- holding the city back? Well, I think what they need to do is close their eyes and think about their children and how the city needs to be able to attract and retain the younger generation to build a future. And what in a very competitive world uh, where people can go anywhere today, it's not like people aren't mobile. It's not like people can't move from point A to point B quite quickly. And so we need to be within the, the confines of competitive communities to ensure that people choose Edmonton. And otherwise, we'll, we won't be able to have those engineers or the doctors, the lawyers, or the carpenters, or the plumbers, or the truck drivers, or the waiters. And we need all of that to build a strong city. And so uh, people need to see that the cost to them is minimal. I know people say their taxes go up, but in a period of time in mayor, your tax has gone up, I don't know the exact percentage, but housing values have gone up probably two and threefold. So people are, are benefiting from the growth of this city. I just have a couple more questions sure. before we wrap up. Uh, it seems to me that Edmonton has grown so much and outwards so much that the city has evolved into uh, disparate communities, with each with their unique characteristics and citizens with a seemingly disparate worldview. I'm just thinking, for example, a city uh, family in Ellerslie might have a very different perception of the city than, say, my wife and I living in Garneau. Um, how... How do you balance that, and what trajectory does the city take, and is that a bad thing? That's a that's a really good question. I mean, there's, uh, you know, the the challenge for um, for us as a city is to try to find a balance in growth, and we'll talk about growth for a minute. And so we've done is we're going to redevelop the airport lands, which we hope and we hope will open up doors for many more families to to move to the the core of the city. But it's difficult to uh, densify most of the mature neighborhoods in the city. They don't want densification. You know, we have enough trouble getting a duplex where there's a single-family home. So it's hard 
to do that and the lifestyle that many people want because in the nicer neighborhoods in some of the you know in, in the mature areas it's quite expensive and so some so they can move to the suburbs where there's a much greater level of density they can find a different housing product which will open up doors for people to get into the housing market and so you know we have to find a balance um but, you know, we need to be equally cognizant of both their needs. So we put in place a program, our, our Neighborhood Renewal Program, which we pay $135, $140 million a year plus to try to rebuild old neighborhoods. When I became mayor, we were doing one a year. Now we're involved in fixing five or redoing five or six in total, but also involved in doing 20, in 25 neighborhoods. So we've paid a lot of attention to those mature areas. We need to build recreation centers for them, which we've done in, in the Commonwealth Recreation Center. We need to invest in light rail transit to make sure that people in the inner city can move better. So all these things are, are, are a package. And then in the suburban areas, we need to make sure they're taken care of. So they have to have good roads, good access to the core of the city. So it really is a team effort. But in the end, you know, we're all one city. And if we're going to grow, we only have so much growth capacity in the inner city and so much growth capacity in the outer part of the city. So how do we make that work for all of us? I imagine it's a policy and sort of legislative nightmare. Well, it, it's... We don't. We don't have a. We have a policy in our municipal development plan that says 25% of our growth will be in mature areas, and 75% will be the green, the green, uh, green field development. Fact of the matter is, if you took away um, some of the the airport lands, we wouldn't have seven or eight percent growth. We have we have very very little growth in our mature areas, and that's unfortunate. Most of the growth there is tear down one house, build a new house, one for one, not build a duplex for a single home. Mm-hmm. E- over the past few months, especially in the wake of the budget cuts to post-secondary education, you've been particularly you've been a particularly vocal advocate yeah. for post-secondary education. What do you perceive is the impact on the city of Edmonton to these budget cuts that have been uh, passed down to post-secondary institutions in this province? Well, first of all, if you take a look at the University of Alberta, the numbers I have it's about a thirteen billion dollar impact on the community. So if you take away 65 million bucks, which the cut was, extrapolate that into the, the, the multiplier effect, you're going to take a billion dollars out of our economy. That in itself is um, um, a real problem. But it, that isn't the issue as much as, uh, as universities are, and this is U of A and Grant McEwen, or McEwen University or Nate, post-secondary education is vitally important to the growth of this province. It will teach those to um, be the carpenters and the plumbers and the engineers and the doctors and the lawyers and it, the teachers, etc. We make decisions to cut that. Today, we won't see a difference, but in two and three and four and five years, we'll see not enough people coming out as we grow. Big, big issue. But you know something? If you think about diversifying an economy, you look for areas within that economy that has opportunities. What greater opportunity do you have to do to take a look at using the research capacities and the investment in universities and colleges as a way to generate additional jobs and creativity, which will expand our economy? We keep talking about getting out of the oil industry. Well, okay. But unless you find some way to invest in something that you already have, you're not going to create a whole new industry. We're not going to build a new widget. Widgets are gone. Maybe we'll find one, you know. I, but I don't guess we're going to have a, a, a Google open up here. 
You know, we have we have lots of tremendous businesses here. So the idea of using universities as a as a, a jumping off point for diversifying the economy, of growing the economy, to me is something that is incredibly short sighted if you don't continue to invest. And attracting people That's here right. as well, which is something that you talked about, the yeah. human resource problem that we have. You attract bright people. Uh, but you know it, it is um, you know, I'm not the in charge of government, so uh, you know, I, I voiced my opinion because I was very concerned. Um, you know, mainly because uh, um, a couple of years ago, the um, the government decided to eliminate capital health and the health boards, and it, I, you know, I mean, uh, it has not gone very well in my mind. Most citizens would agree um, that the changes have, but it impacted Edmonton tremendously. We had an incredible health care system in this city, not that it didn't have warts, not that it didn't have problems. But I'm concerned that the same thing could happen with the, with the post-secondary education. And the University of Alberta, and not that Nate isn't important, McEwen is important, our post-secondary institutions are to the city of Edmonton, where the oil industry is to Calgary, what agriculture is to rural Alberta. And citizens of Edmonton need to stand up, which they have not, and be counted about how important this industry is for us to be a, a strong, progressive, dynamic community. Mayor Mandel, over the past nine years, did your vision for the city pan out the way you thought it would? It's coming to a point where I think it's it's moving forward. Um, you know, if you take a look at the things we've accomplished, um, I, I, you know, someone said to me the other day, you know, we went over the stuff that we've accomplished as far as hard infrastructure, and they said, you know, Mayor, that w- one thing that we that I that I think you have done is build a greater pride in this city. That that people are um, we're a much more confident city today than we were nine years ago. And I hope that's true. You know, I, I have a sense of that. But you know, um, I hope that the naysayers are far less and the progressive people are far more. And uh, and that we'll we'll see uh, in the next uh, municipal election uh, the re-election of the incumbents who are running because they're really good people, and also um, a mayor that is progressive and moving wants to move the city forward. Uh, we don't need to move backwards. In a competitive world, you move backwards, you're going to be in disastrous shape. You're tuned to the CJSR Edition, broadcasting on 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. This week, as Mayor Stephen Mandel prepares for the end of his term as mayor, I had the opportunity to speak with the forward-thinking man in an extended interview. In the second part of our conversation, Mandel speaks frankly about what legacy he hopes to leave behind once he vacates the mayor's office. Is there something more? I'm just sort of curious what legacy you hope that you'll leave behind the city. Well, you know, that'll be for other people to decide. You know, when I'm done in in, uh, six weeks or so, uh, I'll, you know, I'll move off and then someone will make some decisions five, 10, 20 years from now, what legacy I left. Uh, you know, uh, I think that um, we've tried to give good government, we've tried to move the city forward, and people will evaluate that as people evaluate things. It, it seems uh, very sort of boiled down and distilled, but do you feel like you're leaving the city better off than you inherited it nine years ago? I really do. Yeah, I really believe that. And it's not just me and people say the mayor. It's the, the three councils we've had, the administration have worked together. Um, as a matter of fact, just a few minutes ago, I ran into Al Maurer in your student unions building. Um, you know, it, the cities, cities progress because of teamwork. 
and it's the mayor has one vote of 13 and it's a very and sometimes it can be a very weak vote it's it's having councillors they want to be progressive, want to move the city forward. Also want to be fiscally responsible. It's not just spending money without considering what the ramifications of it are. Every time we did something, we did it in a way to make sure that it was done for the betterment of the city of Edmonton, not not to hurt anybody, not to penalize anybody. Um, and it was done because we felt those were things we needed to do. So um, hopefully uh, the next group of people do that. What is your hope for the city in the future then? I hope we continue to move forward to to uh, focus on uh, dealing with the realities of, of a growing city, which are how are we going to deal with our new and uh, emerging populations, how are we going to attract and retain our um, uh, younger generation, and how are we going to build a safe and secure city that uh, is attractive uh, for everybody. So I, I think that there's uh, um, a lot to do. Um, but that'll be up to the new mayor, and I wish him or her a lot of luck, and um, the new council a lot of luck. And, uh, um, you know, I've given the best I can, and but now it's time to move on. What advice would you give to the incoming mayor when he, when he or she uh, sits down on, on October 28th? I would say the single most important bit of advice I can give is that your office is only a small part of what needs to be understood. It is the 12 people down Council Row, as we often refer to them, are the important people. And you need to understand what their needs, their wants, and their goals are. If you don't do that, you'll be how we've been for the past many, many years, not accomplishing what you'd like to do, because it's those people, those 12 people, are the ones that really are the ones that drive the agenda in the city. Any final thoughts? No, just thank you for having me in. You've asked some great questions. Uh, and I am passionate about this university, about all universities in this province, whether it's U of C or Lethbridge or Redyard College. Post-secondary education is vitally important to the vision of this province. And uh, we need to find ways to make it efficient. There's no question about that. And, but we need to find ways to allow it to grow and to create an uh, opportunity for the people that are, that are there and those who are coming in the future. Mayor Stephen Mandel, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. That was my exit interview with Edmonton Mayor Stephen Mandel, who will be vacating the mayor's office later this month after nine years in office. His predecessor will be elected on October 21st, 2013, just 10 days from today. So go out and vote. Next week on the CJSR edition, we will be hearing from the candidates running to fill Mandel's illustrious shoes. This is the CJSR edition. Stay with us. This is Spoken Word Programming on CJSR, 88.5 in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. Radio for the Inquisitive. Welcome back to the CJSR edition. 
As part of the I Am a Bird from Heaven's Garden, Music, Sound, and Architecture in the Muslim World Conference that took place at the University of Alberta on September 13th to 15th, 2013, we had the opportunity to interview Nina Ergren from Koch University. In this next piece, Nina takes us to the Tompaki Palace in 15th century Istanbul and recreates the auditory landscape of the Ottoman Empire. She explains how silence was used as a means of exerting power over the many subjects of the court, but also illustrates how paradisical retreat, complete with singing birds and prayer, was created through sound and garden within the palace walls in contrast to the hustle and bustle of the city. This presentation is part of the larger academic movement to remedy our primarily visual reconstructions of history with a more complete sensory record. What does history sound like? Archaeology and architecture leave us many clues of the landscape of the past, but we must search a lot harder to understand the auditory landscape of times long gone. We imagine the soundscapes of the past at the conference I Am a Bird from Heaven's Garden, Music, Sound, and Architecture in the Muslim World at the University of Alberta on September 13th. We showcase panelist Nina Ergen and her research on Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, Turkey in the 15th and 16th centuries. Uh, my name is Nina Ergin. I'm an art historian and I teach and do research in Istanbul at uh, Koch University. The importance of silence, the absence of sound, in delineating power at the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul illustrates the absolute rule of the Ottoman Empire. Like so much palatial architecture elsewhere, this, the palace served the making of an imperial uh, image and broadcast the supremacy, continuity, and legitimacy of the Ottoman dynasty. Given this, it may be surprising that the Topkapi Palace lacks monumentality and axiality that usually characterizes imperial iconographies worldwide. The palace encompasses a series of courtyards separated from the city by a crenellated wall. Each courtyard is surrounded by rather loosely grouped structures, workshops, armories, hospitals, stables, kitchens, bakeries, baths, audience halls, treasuries, libraries, archives, small mosques, dormitories, and pavilions, within a setting of sports grounds, zoological parks, and gardens, embellished by pools and fountains. The palace's monumentality was based on its enormous horizontal expanse, framed by the vertical mass of the Hagia Sophia and broken by the Belvedere above the Imperial Council Hall. While the exterior appearance from the south gives the impression of a fortress-like structure, the interior appearance is of a more modest and humane scale, 
offering pleasant views and inviting corners. The space, therefore, has a strong experiential dimension. It is the theatrical experience of sequentially moving through the courtyards that creates a coherent effect on the visitor, with movement through space and time serving as, quote, binding glue for the seemingly incoherent architectural units. Whether in the 16th century or today, visitors enter the Topkapa Palace through the imperial gate with a foundation inscription that identifies Mehmed II as the Sultan of two continents, that is Asia and Europe, and Emperor of two seas, that is the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Here, visitors left behind the hustle and bustle and din of the city and prepared to transition to the silent interior of the second courtyard. Um, this threshold became the site for the initiation ceremony of the page boys to be educated in the palace school that was part of the private household. And this initiation required novices to stand at the gate in th for three days in silence. They were not allowed to speak anyone, and no one was allowed to speak to them. And the ultimate name for this ceremony is Pars, which implies a ritual purification through the abstinence of worldly chatter, quite reminiscent of monastic practices. Once admitted, the novices entered a world of deep silence which they could rarely leave. And the strictly regulated palace school life molded the ethnically and linguistically diverse novices into a ruling elite with a distinct esprit de corps. This is actually something I'm sure everybody has also experienced nowadays. Uh, there's no need to go to history for that. Yeah. Because when you, as a child, first go to school, what is the first thing that you learn to do? You learn to be silent and to subordinate yourself to the will of the teacher or sort of the, the atmosphere of the library for quiet study and, and reflection. And you can also find it, as I've described it, in the Topkapa Palace sort of as a means to discipline the young boys um, and to, yeah, to mold them into servants of um, the Ottoman dynasty. So they only were allowed to chat quietly with each other in the dormitories in the two hours between evening and night prayers. So it must have been really a great relief for them when they were able to chat, to talk, to sing, and walk around freely in the third courtyard on religious holidays, victory celebrations, and occasional graduation ceremonies. Bobovi also describes um, how a latticed window in the no longer extant old council hall occasionally served page boys to communicate with the outside world, or how they pretended illness so that they would be transferred to a hospital in the publicly accessible first courtyard. All page boys had to learn sign language to be able to communicate without speaking. And according to Bobovi, quote, those in the privy chamber are always forced to communicate by signs and gestures, maintaining complete silence at all times in the sultan's presence. So only the sultan's three favorite pages were allowed to address him in the spoken word. Now, where did this come from? The employment of mutes uh, can certainly be documented for the reign of Mehmed II, who used them as executioners and confidential servants. Uh, moreover, like dwarves, hunchbacks, and other rare individuals, mutes were considered as boon companions and pets. As such, two deaf-mute brothers who had developed their own sign language among themselves were brought to court where they caught the attention of Suleiman the Magnificent. 
and the Sultan promptly ordered the adoption of signing, since it seemed to him a most decorous way of communicating. Thereafter, it was considered rude to even whisper in the ruler's presence, and all page boys learned to sign. Bobovi even mentions a room in the third courtyard that served as a day retreat where all the mutes taught the younger ones and the pages how to sign. Silence is actually part of communication. You have to learn how to use silence just like you have to learn how to use language, right? Um, so uh, some of the things that I talked about in, in my lecture was that uh, silence can mean sort of a kind of intimacy and comfort if you're together with a close friend or a partner and you're comfortable to be silent together. Or it can be uncomfortable silence if you are together with an acquaintance and you don't know what to talk about. Um, it can be um, restorative silence, so silence that we desire because you know we need to get away from the Blackberries <laughs> and, the, and the iPods and so forth. Yeah. Um, and uh, or you know, silence of commemoration. Yeah. So the uh, silence, depending on context, can say as much as words can say. The Sultan himself generally remains seated silently behind a latticed window, considering it beneath him to waste words on mundane administrative issues. Still, through his presence, he ensured the vizier's proper dispensation of imperial justice, upon which his legitimacy hinged. The silence among the assembled mass of courtiers that so astonished Puzbek became part of the daily ceremonial in Mehmed II's later reign. He appeared under the Babisade every day at dawn for about 15 minutes in front of the courtyard filled with about 8,000 officials wearing the most magnificent kaftans. The entire courtyard stood in absolute silence while Mehmed II and the dignitaries were offered food. The Sultan would not eat in the presence of others, however. At the end of this banquet, the silence was broken and the courtiers loudly acclaimed their ruler, extolling, praising, and glorifying his name. Shouted by about 8,000 throats, this must have created a very strong contrast to the preceding silence and a very loud sound mark that could have been heard maybe even outside the palace. If ambassadors were present, they then bowed and kissed the Sultan's hand. Mehmed rose to his feet, initiating another round of acclamation, a process that was repeated once more before he returned to his private quarters. So this court ceremonial then enforced great psychological distance between ruler and ruled. What struck me uh, so particularly praiseworthy in that great multitude was the silence and good discipline. There was none of the cries and murmurs which usually proceed from a motley concourse, and there was no crowding. Each man kept his appointed place in the quietest manner possible. The most remarkable body of men were several thousand Janissaries who stood in a long line apart from the rest 
and so motionless that as they were some distance from me, I was for a while doubtful, for were they living men or statues? Ogiel Ghislain de Buzbek, Austrian diplomat and ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in 1555. Unfortunately, the Ottomans have, have left uh, no written sources that really explicate the meanings of their silence. But what we can say is that for the residents of the third courtyard, the pa uh, particularly the palace pages, it often came to feel oppressive. Talking and music were considered relaxation. And in the second courtyard, silence sometimes had to be beaten into the visitors. Doubtless, the ability to silence a crowd of several thousand was a display of great power. Likely, Mehmed II was very aware of this aspect when he established his court ceremonial. You may think of the Topkapi Palace as a carefully managed stage, set apart from daily life, pure, unearthly, even paradisical, conveying its meaning with the help of human props and a purposefully orchestrated soundscape that also included silence. And a soundscape that, especially in its use of silence, attracted great wonderment from contemporary Thank you to panelist Nina Ergen. Sound is an important component of society. The importance of silence today in our own communication can provide insight on how those subjects of the Ottoman Empire must have felt. This is Roshni Nair reporting for the CGSR edition. That piece was produced by CJSR's Roshni Nair. Hello, this is Stephen Mandel, and you're listening to the CJSR edition on 88.5 FM in Edmonton. To finish off today's show, we're going to travel to the strange and mysterious world of the Art Gallery of Alberta. The Intellection of Lady Spider House is a new exhibit on now at the Art Gallery of Alberta created by Jeffrey Farmer in collaboration with 11 other artists. It's an exhibit that takes the form of a haunted house. In this haunted house, the viewer discovers found objects, a collection of pre-existing artworks, and new pieces that point to Edmonton's history and current happenings. CJSR's Lisa Pruden has more. Let's introduce this in the style of old-timey radio. The scene you are about to enter is a haunting spectacle. Turn down your lights and gather your courage as we tell you the story of the intellection of Lady Spider House. Listen, Listen to me, to I. I am, I a, spider. am a spider. You must you not must mistake not me mistake for the sky. Me for the, sky. The, sky the sky read at night, night is a sailor's, is a sailor's delight. delight. The sky the read sky in morning is a sailor's warning. You must not mistake me for the sky. I am I. I am 
Enter, friends. Enter into this strange labyrinth. You are surrounded by shadow, and as a spider creeps down to greet you, a familiar feeling begins to clutch hold of your insides. Yes, you felt this before. The anticipation, the vulnerable uncertainty of what awaits you around the next corner. Monsters, impossible spaces, corridors and wardrobes. And we all know what wardrobes can do, eh? Yes, this is a place of haunting imagination. But whenever you find yourself in this space, crossing a mysterious tunnel or lost in a hall of mirrors, the thunder will find you rolling out of the darkness. This unique sound installation will cause your heart to tremble. We spoke with the creator of this audio piece, the award-winning Hannah Rickards. She who brings the storm. Well, it's a, a piece I made in 2005, so uh, an existing piece. Um, and it's, um, it's a work in which I took a single thunderclap and I extended it from about um, 10 seconds to a, a roughly seven minutes. Uh, and then at that point when I was kind of moving the sound around, there was a point where it sounded like an orchestra tuning up where you could hear these kind of approximations of different instruments. And at that point... Um, I worked with a composer who called David Murphy who transcribed this sound that I gave him into a score for six instruments and we then recorded the performance of that score uh, and then took the compressed the sound we took all the steps that we'd taken out extending the sound right back so you hear what is a kind of enough like thunder for you to be able to engage in thinking of it as thunder but is also kind of has traces of a kind of musicality in it you hear these little kind of inflections so what you hear is all being performed by uh, by a violin a viola a cello a trumpet a trombone and a flute Jeffrey in, uh, in, invited me to take part in the show um, and he was sort of uh, yeah thinking of this particular piece when he invited me and I guess it's something that sort of goes over the top, you know, it's sort of um, this kind of constant thread that's kind of, as a sound work, that exists kind of in all the spaces, all these different kind of dead ends and mazes and things that you find in the show have this, this sound kind of permeating through them. So, yes, it was a particular piece that he, you know, he'd wanted to be included in the exhibition. But as an existing work, it wasn't, it was already, you know, a thing in the world. Captivating, isn't she? We just listened to the numinous Hannah Rickards describing her musical contribution to the art gallery of Alberta's spookiest exhibition, The Intellection of Lady Spider House. Perhaps you ought to stop by for a visit, hmm? I'm sure you'd be welcomed, if you dare. The Intellection of Lady Spider House is open until January 12th, 2014. Until next time. Thanks to CJSR's Lisa Pruden for putting that piece together. And that's all the time we have left on this episode of the CJSR edition. This week, 
The program was produced by Speaking Into Microphones and by me, Matt Hergy. We produced the show in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Thank you very much today to Mr. Mayor Stephen Mandel, Jeffrey Farmer, Nina Ergren, and Julia Freyer. The CJSR edition is a spoken word project of CJSR FM in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We broadcast on 88.5, we podcast on iTunes, and we stream worldwide on CJSR.com. For more information on this series, you can visit cjsrnews.com. Thank you very much for tuning in.